0: I want to invite those of you who are with us today to stand for the reading from God's Holy Word. And our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Friends, both here among us and at home, we invite your attention now to God's Word for us. Now, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. "'sitting at the tax booth. "'And he said to him, follow me. "'And he got up, left everything, and followed him. "'Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house, "'and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others "'sitting at the table with him. "'The Pharisees and their scribes "'were complaining to his disciples, saying, "'Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners?' And Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jim, thank you so much for your prayer for us today. And thank you, Mason and the boy band. It was an all boy band today. If you noticed uh, the praise team for leading us in in worship and to all of you who are present, uh, it is a great blessing. Those of you who are with us from home, it's a blessing. Uh, We're continuing our series today that we're calling Kindred Hearts with yet another call story. And this one happens to be from Luke's gospel, Dr. Luke's gospel. One of the things that I notice, that we notice as we read through the scripture is that it's rather surprising and and maybe sometimes stunning, the people that Jesus calls to join him along the journey. They're not always necessarily the religious types that we might expect. And when you think about it, Jesus really didn't do much recruiting at the synagogue. He didn't do any recruiting at the Sanhedrin the religious aristocracy, but Jesus was a rabbi who went out to where people lived, where they worked, where they played. Jesus went out to the seaside. He went to the boat dock. He went to the farm. He went to the field. He went to the office. And Jesus somehow in these places found kindred hearts in unlikely places and often in unlikely people. One of my favorite passages of scripture that notes the surprise of who God calls is in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. You can find this in chapter one, first Corinthians, of verses 25 and following, where Paul says, consider your own call, brothers and sisters, that not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, in order to reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no person might boast in the presence of God. And in Luke chapter five, Jesus calls one, Who is low and despised to be one of his disciples, to be on his lead team. He has a good Jewish name. This is a good Jewish name. If you know the ancient Hebrew, that name, Levi, according to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, Levi, you remember, was the third son of Jacob and Leah. He was the founder of the tribe called the Levites that happened to be the clergy of the people, the priestly class of the Israelites. And Levi in Genesis became the grandfather to Moses, to Miriam, and to Aaron. What you may not know is that in the ancient Hebrew language, the name Levi, you know what it means? It means united, it means attached, it means joined. Now, that's a beautiful name, but the man had a vile vocation. He's a tax man. He's a tax agent. In the Roman Empire, local residents were often subjected to many taxes. They were levied on almost everything from their land to their homes, to their real estate, to their servants, their animals. They paid bridge tolls. They paid road tolls. They paid personal item, taxes, monetary wealth. And I was reminded of Will Rogers, I think it was Will Rogers who said, the difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. That's an interesting, interesting thing. Mark Twain said, he asked the question, what's the difference between a taxidermist and a tax collector? And he answered it, the taxidermist really takes only your skin. It's an interesting discussion, and we still discuss fair tax. What is your fair share? I love this cartoon where they're being audited, and the husband says to the wife, like the sign says, it's all theirs. And we continue to have this discussion today. The task of collecting taxes in the first century was often given to a wealthy and powerful figure in a geographical area, most often someone who was not a native of that area. He would, in turn, divide the area into tax districts where district superintendents, bad choice, where chief collectors would, in turn, use locals for the actual collection. The system allowed for extra income to be collected above and beyond the amount prescribed by the government. So, as you can imagine, corruption was a possibility. And these publicans, as they were called, were low and despised. In fact, Orthodox Jews, says Josephus, the Jewish historian, referred to them as licensed robbers or beasts in human shape. Now, add to that the ceremonial impurity of their association with Gentiles and the element of treason for working with foreigners against one's own people, and you can understand why they were ridiculed, why they were scorned. You wouldn't have liked them any better. The occupation itself was considered a breach of the Mosaic law, and so they were banned from the synagogue. Incidentally, it's interesting to me that in Luke chapter 3, if you go back to Luke 3, you remember when the tax collectors responded to John the Baptist's ministry when they came out into the wilderness to be baptized? You remember that John did not demand them to resign their position. He didn't. He didn't demand the soldiers to resign the military. Instead, he said to these tax collectors, you need to be honest in your practice. You need to be ethical in your positions. Don't collect more than your fair share. Don't pad your pockets with extra. You remember also that Jesus was asked a very loaded question, both by Pharisees and Herodians. Herodians were people who supported King Herod, the puppet king in Israel with their taxes. And they asked Jesus, should we or should we not pay taxes to Caesar? You remember Jesus' answer? He wouldn't be painted into a corner Jesus said, give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. So suffice it to say that this guy, Levi, is a rather shocking candidate for the ministry. But Jesus, who has a knack for including the excluded, finds in this man a kindred heart and he invites him to be a part of the disciple's. Follow me, says Jesus, and lo and behold, he does. And just like the fisherman earlier in the same chapter, Luke 5, Levi, listen to this, gets up, leaves everything, and follows Jesus. It does require, doesn't it? Leaving everything. Being willing to prioritize your life in such a way that God comes first, never second. That God, that our faith is not a compartment of life, it is life itself and everything else takes its priority under Christ's leadership. I think it's important to note in this story that Jesus didn't choose Levi because of Levi's potential. We hear this too often, sometimes even in the cabinet and in the clergy, that we're looking for the brightest and best to be in ministry. Jesus didn't choose Levi because he was the brightest and the best. He chose Levi because of God's grace. Because grace always makes room for even the low and despised This is a rabbi who's different from other rabbis in that he's a friend of the friendless. He has a gift for including the excluded. He treats outsiders like they're part of the family. And it's life-changing for Levi. It's life-changing for me. It's life-changing for you. Two weeks ago, I heard some life changes, some witnesses, some testimonies in Haney Hall. We had a banquet for our healing housing ministry. David, you were there, others were there. And we collected over $100,000 for this incredible ministry to these courageous women who have come through addiction or through the prison system or some, some difficult experience. And they're finding a home in healing housing. In fact, the rate of recovery now for those in addiction in healing housing is 83%. And if you know anything about addiction and recovery, that's unheard of. There was a woman who spoke that day. She's 28 years of age. She was a cheerleader in Williamson County. I have her permission to share this. She now works for Healing Housing. She said, I went to 11 different addiction clinics, 28-day clinics. And every time I got out, I went right back to my old life. And then one day somebody told me about Healing Housing And as soon as I stepped across the threshold, they said, welcome home. For 10 years of my life, I never knew home. And I walked into that place of grace, and I was home. She's celebrating over a year of recovery now. In fact, she's employed by Healing Housing, and you're helping to pay that salary. Talking about grace making room. You remember the great playwright Eugene O'Neill who said, we are born broken, we live mending, and the grace of God is glue. That's what joins, that's what attaches, that's what connects us together. That's a great story up to that point. And here's where it goes south. I hate to spoil a good story, but the ensuing scene... In Luke 5 is troubling to the scribes and Pharisees. Levi apparently is so elated, so jubilant about his new sense of calling that he does what anybody would have done. He invites his rowdy friends over for dinner. And it, re- it really makes sense that, that Levi would want to introduce his friends to Jesus. But when the scribes and Pharisees see from a distance Jesus cozying up to the riffraff, they're upset. In fact, they're indignant. And I get it. I might have been one of those Pharisees. I get it. It doesn't look good. People are going to get the wrong idea. It's not good for our reputation. And isn't it interesting how oftentimes we are more concerned about how something looks than how it really is? Sometimes we're more worried about optics than actuality. Perception is reality, they say. But here's the thing. We don't always see things as they are. We see things as we are. In fact, what you see is often what you project. Richard Rohr, in his incredible book called The Naked Now, he's a Franciscan monk, says this, when you have not had any internal experience of God and grace, you, most, you almost always overcompensate with external window dressing. The window dressings are not wrong in and of themselves, but they do tend to make non-essentials into essentials that we obsess about and divide over. In fact, did you notice it's even possible to divide over masks? To determine a person's character by a mask? We can politicize almost anything these days. And so these scribes and Pharisees complain. It's interesting they don't complain to Jesus. They go to his disciples And the scribes and Pharisees, if you read the rest of Luke, they seem to be fluent in the language of complaint. I love this picture. I'm praying that our new grandbaby won't have a face like that, but we're often fluent in the language of complaint. Lily Tomlin said language was invented because of our need to complain. And don't get me wrong, the language of lament is absolutely necessary, everybody needs to vent every now and then, and sometimes it's important to be able to vent to God. To not be able to do that is sort of like having a fireplace with a flue that's closed. It's going to burn the house down. And there's a reason a third of the book of Psalms are laments. That opens the flue and allows our lamenting to become a prayer to God. And so it's important, but that's not our native tongue. Complaint, lament, is not our native language. Our native language is praise. It's the first word after creation that when God creates day one through day six, he said, this is good. And then he scooped up a handful of dust, Tennessee clay, breathed his spirit into it and made you. And he said, this is my masterpiece, this is the best I can do. This is very good. That's our native tongue. I don't know if I've ever mentioned Radnor to you. Have I ever mentioned Radnor Park to you? One of my favorite sanctuaries is to walk the trail in Radnor Park and sometimes the ridge. And I was walking it the other day on the pavement, which is now beginning to crumble beside the lake. And I came upon a boy, a little about six years old, and he was absolutely overjoyed at the sight of a turtle on a log, it's a giant turtle, must've weighed 50 pounds. And he called it to my attention as I was coming by. And for five minutes, he and I jumped up and down and celebrated about the wonder of turtledom. It's the language of praise, the magic, the mystery of creation, of being able to say it is good. I've noticed in our culture, that it is easier to get a group together over something we're against than over something we're for. And I don't completely understand that. I don't know how it is that it helps to love others by leaving someone else on the sidelines. I've never understood that. But there's that complaint Verse 30 specifies the complaint, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And when I stop and think about it, frankly, I think they may have a point. They may have a legitimate beef. Table fellowship for Jews was a sign of covenant relationship. In other words, people that you eat with, that's a sign of intimacy. That's a sign of deep relationship, of community, of kindred hearts. And it's one thing for Jesus to tolerate these reprobates at arm's length, but it's another thing to eat with them. And frankly, when you see Jesus with this riffraff, it looks like he is accepting them, like he is approving of them or even endorsing their behavior. And frankly, we need some parameters. We need some polity. We need some separation because what will others think? Sometimes we're more concerned about what others think than what Jesus thinks. But the mission of Christ is not accomplished by separation. It's accomplished by incarnation and reconciliation. It was the Apostle Paul who said it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God has given to us in the church the ministry of reconciliation. That is restored harmony. That is restored friendship. In fact, he calls us, listen to this, ambassadors of reconciliation. That's who we are. It's reattaching the detached, it's reconnecting that which is disconnected. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't wait for sinners to come to him. He sees us. He comes to us. He eats with us. He loves us. Grace makes room. Now, it's ironic to me that the name Levi, as I mentioned, means attached, right? United, connect. You know what the name Pharisee means. Perush in Hebrew means separate ones. Now, that's more than irony, maybe. I've been reading a book about St. Francis of Assisi called Eager to Love. And in the spirit of St. Francis, this is what is written about separateness. Phariseeism. Separateness is unfortunately the chosen stance of the small self, which then has a hard time living in unity, but always takes one side or the other in order to feel secure. It frames everything in a binary way, for me or against me, totally right, totally wrong, my group's opinion or another group's opinion, all dualistic formulations And that is the best that the small egotistical self can do. And it is not anywhere close to adequate for God's full purposes. End of quote. It was Alan Patton, the great missionary in South Africa, who said, I have always found that actively loving saves us from a morbid preoccupation with the shortcomings of society just actively loving. Well, I've gone to preaching a little too much. Back to the text. To this complaint, Jesus responds by clarifying his mission. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance, repentance. In other words, Jesus is reconnecting the disconnected. Jesus doesn't wait for us to get our life together and then accept us. He accepts us, and that enables us to get our life together. (laughs) In other words, his grace enables our repentance. A good doctor doesn't exist simply for those who are well, though preventative medicine is helpful. But a good doctor exists for those who are sick, those who are ill. And so it is with Dr. Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees were not wrong in their assessment that these tax collectors were sinners. (laughs) They most certainly were. But they were wrong in thinking that they themselves were without sin that was their mistake. And C.S. Lewis hit it straight on when he said Christianity has no message for those of us who do not realize that we are sinners. Let me give you two examples and I'm finished. We mentioned Ruth Hesse, her service yesterday, 104. She personified grace. We were having her service and one of her neighbors who used to live next door to her before she moved to St. Paul, his name is Jay Young, stood over here at the lectern, loved this woman as though it was his mother and told of an episode that I will never forget in her life. He said it was about 15 years ago. She had just hit middle age at 89 and I took Miss Ruth back to her hometown to Portland. She was born in Cottontown. She lived in Portland just just a little south of the Kentucky state border. She wanted to go to the strawberry festival. And so Jay said, I took her there. She's about 90 years old. And we found a place to sit and watch the parade go by. And while the parade was going by, there was this mother with three or four unruly children. And she was just yelling at the children. And Jay said, I was completely aggravated. And I thought something needs to be said. And I started to go over and say something to her when Ruth took my arm and looked me in the eye and said, Jay, she's probably doing the best she knows how. He said, I've never gotten over Miss Ruth, my teacher, teaching me about being judgmental. And he said, every time I begin to get overly judgmental, I hear her voice say, now, Jay, they're doing about the best. They know how. You could make it worse. And he said, She served me without me ever knowing it. Because in teaching me, she never put me down, she lifted us up. Last word Dr. John Duncan taught Hebrew at Edinburgh years ago, Edinburgh Theology School. He was sitting one day at communion in church, and he was feeling personally so unworthy that when the elements came around, he felt like he couldn't take them. He said, I allowed the bread and wine to pass, and I was just sitting there feeling miserable, and I noticed a girl next to me in the congregation who, when the bread and wine got to her, she also allowed them to pass, and then she broke down and cried. That seemed to bring John back to the truth that he had forgotten. And in a caring whisper, he asked for the communion elements to come back. And in a caring whisper, he said to this girl in a way that the whole nave could hear, take it, child, take it. It's meant for sinners like us. And they took it together. Shame says that because I'm flawed, I'm unacceptable. Grace says that though I am flawed, I'm cherished. I don't know why, but sometimes I make it hard for God to give away God for free. And grace, like water, always flows to the lowest part, and there it pools. Grace makes room so that the unattached might become reattached to the glory of God. And that's your mission. That's my mission. And that's what makes for kindred hearts. May it be so in Jesus' name.